Welcome to this new podcast where we look for new possibilities to the present and the future uh, of both faith and reason. We care about all four of these things, faith and reason in the present and future. And we'd like to share our rather unique explorations with you, esteemed listeners. We have one immediate reaction to many of the issues and viewpoints we're going to be discussing. Well, Easting, my good friend and co-host, would you please enunciate that reaction? That's so second. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. I could not have said that better myself. You're not only a PhD in the sciences and a well-grounded student of Catholic wisdom, but you have a great radio voice. By the way, listeners, I'm Bill Schmidt, the other co-host, a Catholic journalist and interviewer. We'll tell you more about ourselves during the course of the upcoming episodes. But Paul, to start off, let me ask you to give us a quick exploration of that phrase, an explanation of that phrase, that so second millennium. Why is that wonderfully, curmudgeonly moan of frustration a good name for this podcast? Oh, Bill, I'm too young to be a curmudgeon. <laughs> In any case, the idea the idea behind the name is twofold. There's a positive and a negative. Let's dispense with the negative first. The negative, you know, the uh, the world that we were both born into, that distant, dim, and misty time before the turn of the millennium, was a time we might characterize by the world of science, the world of faith, and if there was still a world of philosophy, being wandering off on separate tracks, siloed, specialized, and talking to each other as little as possible. That's the world in which the new atheism was born, and that's the world, unfortunately, in which a lot of people of faith are also stuck. So that's the negative side of that's so second millennium. But mm-hmm. there's a positive side, too, mm-hmm. because we're facing problems that aren't unique in human history. The scale of them is unique, but the problems themselves are not of a unique nature. So we'll flesh this out in more detail later, but... We've uh, the Catholic intellectual tradition has certainly faced this sort of issue where in the 12th and 13th centuries, the sort of new learning of Aristotle, who Aristotle was the greatest scientist of his time and was still at that point, uh, a millennium and a half later, the greatest scientist that people knew about. The Arab commentators, like Averroes in particular, lauded Aristotle to the skies. He was so systematic. He had he had a thought on everything and had a place for everything. And unfortunately, in Aristotle's world, there was no place for, or it was difficult to see a place for, a provident creator, or even creation. So, there was a war in the Western Europe of the 12th and 13th centuries about Aristotle. And whether you had to cling to the Christian faith and throw Aristotle out, or whether you could attempt a sophistic solution and try to keep Aristotle in one compartment and your faith over in another compartment. But what actually won the day is the synthesis that the great thinkers of the 13th century achieved. Thomas Aquinas, Albert the Great, Duns Scotus, uh, and the many other people active at that time in philosophy and theology managed to find a way to understand enough of Aristotle to get the benefits of his systematic thinking and understanding of nature, and at the same time retain 
all of the Catholic dogmas, all of the authoritative teachings of Christianity in one coherent package. And when they did that, fascinating consequences were erected on that foundation. That, again, in smaller scale, that that solution was very much smaller in scale. What we'd have, what we face today, is much larger. But the goal of what we're talking about in that so second millennium in this podcast is that the third millennium can achieve a larger and more fascinating and intricate synthesis of theology, quantum physics, neuroscience, and many other fields of human endeavor that have produced quite fascinating and unexpected results. Very interesting. So that hope for a synthesis is more important than ever for all sorts of reasons, and by uh, by by championing it, uh, we're inherently saying that that is the the pathway. But at the same time, in our society, culture, and religion today, there's uh, a real uh, split between faith and reason. So, are we being hopelessly optimistic by saying that uh, returning to that synthesis and even kicking it up several notches is going to be the answer that we're that we and our listeners are looking for well i think uh, it's been my working hypothesis for my entire intellectual life that it's really more a question of fashion than it is a question of the synthesis being tried and having failed huh. it really and we'll talk about this, of course, we have hopefully an entire podcast of, of, of many episodes to talk about some of these uh, details. Right. But it's a question of the intellectual fashion of the day. And frankly, people of faith have played their own role in uh, making the situation as negative as it is. Uh, sometimes many of us are content to get stuck in just repeating the dictums of the faith and the way that we've inherited and tuning out, turning away from any engagement with the outside world. And, of course, then the outside world re- responds in kind, and you get people like Christopher Hitchens and mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins and, and the like. Yeah. And so that's exactly the chasm that uh, I think we'd like to bridge here. And in particular, to avoid uh, to avoid being confrontational about it. There's no need for that. It doesn't really serve that much purpose. In my career as a scientist, uh I don't. I haven't seen a lot of value in the sort of stereotypical picture of the debate. The point is to simply take a hypothesis, lay out the evidence and the conclusions that favor it, and see where it goes, and see if see if you can answer all of the problems. See if there are internal contradictions. Look at other people's hypotheses. Look at the answers that they've come up with. And often, what you actually do is you're not you're not simply making a binary choice between one hypothesis and another you're merging the two Ooh, I like that. you see the points yeah. of parallel and in fact all of the you know when when we have a scientific revolution we do not simply turn over that's sort of a i think a misconception on, among some people who study this concept of the psychology and philosophy of science you know so so for example one of the one of the quintessential uh scientific revolutions was the uh, was relativity, right? Einstein relativity, and that burst upon and, in some sense, exploded the concept of 
Newtonian and Galilean gravity and dynamics. Right. But the thing about that is, is that it doesn't mean that Newtonian and Galilean dynamics are wrong. You can use Newtonian and Galilean dynamics to solve an awful lot of problems. And mm-hmm. even even NASA, which sends things very fast at very distant objects, right. um, generally doesn't need to take relativity into account. You can that, that that's an error in the fifth or eighth decimal place, which they need to worry about errors in the fourth or fifth decimal place. So once in a while, they probably do want to take that into account, especially if you're say sending a probe toward uh, Mercury. But the, the Newtonian approximation, it's an approximation. It's not the incomplete truth, but it's close enough to the truth that within the level of error that you can conduct an experiment with, and certainly did in the 17th century, it answers all of your questions. Hmm. It's, only, it's only when we started to ask questions of things moving very fast or being very massive that it turned out that we needed the relativistic correction. Huh. So... That's a example, perhaps not the absolute best example that could be picked, but it certainly gives you some taste of, usually we don't need to throw a hypothesis away. We don't usually need to throw a substantiated theory away. That almost never happens. What happens is we find that it's a limiting fa- a limiting case of something much more complicated. Mm-hmm. When we bring things together from multiple viewpoints, then we start to get really fascinating interactions the approach is both exciting and I think very much in line with somebody like Pope Francis, whose whole approach to theological thought, as well as thought more broadly, is kind of human ecology, the everything is related to everything else approach. And it makes sense in in our age today to tap into all of the strengths of all of the different disciplines. But... Uh, it seems that too, let me be the devil's advocate in saying that too seems to be a skill that fewer and fewer people have, unfortunately, because of the trends in university life where everything has become kind of siloed. And in general, we're a little bit less, first of all, we're less knowledgeable about the current status of knowledge in all of these different fields because they're moving so fast. Partly, mm-hmm. and who can keep track of, of everything? But we're also more, in, you know, the students studying this are often just more interested in getting a particular job in a particular mm-hmm. career silo or whatever. So, again, my devil's advocate question would be, uh, are we on the right track in terms of solving problems and, and reaching people with new answers that are needed, but at the same time barking up a barking up the wrong tree in terms of what's even capable in our culture and society today? Well, that's that's a dangerous question to ask, especially <laughs> someone who's recently quit uh, university teaching. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, uh, that, that's, that, that is uh, the sociological question of, of the direction, the trends of society, and what people are and are not willing to think about. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a nasty question uh, that we're going to have to face. But uh, I hope that endeavors like what we're trying to do right now will at least convince people, and especially younger people, with a lot of these decisions about their education still in front of them, right. to take these questions more seriously. Right. Um, yeah, but the uh, a book you pointed me to not too long ago, The Death of Expertise, talks oh, about yes. uh, 
talks about uh, the the modern university as uh, consumer consumer driven, and uh, you know everything being driven by the uh, the student evaluations and whether the students enjoyed the class or not. And while it's absolutely core that uh, you respond to whether your teachings uh, whether your teaching styles. Are, are helpful or not, and that you should be, uh, as a as a university uh, instructor, one should definitely be making use of the new things that are being learned about just the science, you know, the, the psychology of education. On the other hand, there's also the question of what students want is definitely not always what they need. Well, that's right. And one of the things that uh, gets a jettison first is the whole substructure of mathematics and logic Yes. That underlies, and those are really almost two sides of the same coin. If you're really good at one, you're going to you're going to have a corresponding benefit in the other. Yeah, and that unfortunately is the very first thing that students want uh, instructors to get rid of and to do less of. Yes, and in my in my career as a mineralogy professor, well, I mean, what am I going to talk to them about? I'm going to talk to them about atoms uh-huh. and their spatial relationships to each other. So I'm going to talk about chemistry and mathematics. Yeah. Oh, those are two things that students don't want to hear about. <laughs> <laughs> and the number of times I faced a class and and just wanted to shake my head in sorrow and uh, sympathy for them, did they think that they were going to get into a hard science like geology and never have to do any mathematics again? I couldn't, yeah. <sighs> Sadly, no. Right. Um, and then, you know, there, there's also the question of what we can do about the acculturation of things like mathematic and mathematics and logic and, and is simply attempt to make sure that those are taught better at lower levels, but also to try to stymie, to stem the uh, cultural, I think there's simply a cultural drive to consider those as those are nerdy subjects, those can't be any fun, yeah. and to intimidate large classes of the population, women, possibly minorities, right. from thinking that, you know, if you were you're beaten before you even enter the competition, um, you're not going to do very well. That's a very good point. And that's that's something else that uh, you know. That there's there's a lot of work to be done, and this podcast is just one small piece of it. Very good, but I'm glad. Yeah, we agree that we, this podcast is worth doing for precisely the reasons you've outlined. When when the going gets tough in terms of uh, the uh, trends in in university. Life and in the trends of uh, everyday uh, thinking and intellectual thought being a little bit more siloed, uh, the tough have to get going, and people who aren't still interested in this more holistic approach have to really uh, it, listen to podcasts, make prog- podcasts, uh, comment on them. We're going to invite our listeners to be very interactive with us, and then see where else this takes us as the episodes. Go on. One last question occurs to me as a kind of introductory question. Because we're going to be um, looping in a lot of different fields of study in order to have this truly holistic and effective approach, what kinds of interviews and what kinds of uh, excerpts from books and what kinds of overall conversations do you think we're going to have touching on, on what kinds of of subjects and looking for what kinds of expertise? Well, uh, we've talked about, uh, I think, well, I've, we've, we've both talked about the arc uh, regarding physics. Yes. So, of course, that's in, in some way very foundational. What is the nature of this universe that we actually live in? Right. And just how strange it is. Yes. We have passed the point in human history where we can indulge the conceit that the universe is anything like what our common sense would have us believe that uh. it is. 
That's that's simply no longer a valid option. And that, of course, for a person of faith, ironically, is a opportunity for us to contemplate the truth that has been part of Christian and Jewish revelation from the beginning, that God's ways are not our ways. And so far above us are his ways. It's not really surprising that uh, as we've dug further and further into the foundations of reality, we found things that are very strange indeed. Um, And the question then is, what does that tell us, if anything? And I think it does tell us some things about what we should think about a creator who would create such a strange and fascinating universe. Yeah. Um, so that's one arc. Another arc, bringing it uh, to a more personal level, is to confront uh, both the, the philosophic and, and theological questions around our minds, and huh. therefore to confront what neuroscience has to tell us about how we think, which is not everything, although some people confuse it with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see what we can, you know, in a world where we have observed, you know, we we can now pinpoint. Pinpoint is is not a uh, is not at this point, at this point in time. I've used the word point a few too many times. That's okay. At present, we cannot yet use the term pinpoint all that accurately. We do not have individual neurons in the brain yet that we can we can identify with certain behaviors or certain tendencies, but we do certainly have tightly constrained areas of the brain that we can monitor and and realize that if we remove them, we do change people's personality. Wow. There is that uh, very material aspect of ourselves, and the funny thing about that is, well, there are there are multiple funny things that we'll have the chance to talk about as we go through hopefully a neuroscience arc as sort of the second arc of our uh, podcast and our right. exploration here. But uh, one of the fascinating things about that, if we look at the interplay from centuries gone by between different branches of Christianity, different strains of ancient philosophy, Neoplatonism, for example, mm-hmm. or Platonism in its, in its earlier forms, there is this strange sort of sore thumb doctrine in the New Testament that a lot of people have found it more convenient to forget about at certain periods in history. That's the resurrection of the body. Wow. And that's something that if we are now confronted with the fact that to do any thinking at all, we really must have our body, we really must have our brain, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Well, it's not surprising to me to, to find out that the human soul, if it's going to be resurrected in any sense, will actually have to have a resurrected body. It must have this uh, counterpart. Right. And whatever rules the counterpart in the life to come will have, it still is going to have to play that role that our material body does in this life. Wow. And so there's actually, this is an example of where there's actually an opportunity that I don't think people think about anywhere near as often as they should. Right. Um, then there, there are more issues in questions like psychology. So this Jesus of Nazareth guy laid down what was then and continues to be today this uh, very strict, you know, this is just an, as an example, this very strict dictum about marriage, that you know, divorce and remarriage is uh, committing adultery, that mm-hmm. it's that it's a transgression uh, regardless. And every culture at the time that he said that, and practically every culture today, accepts divorce. Right. Um, the Roman culture did, Jewish culture did, Greek culture, Arab culture, Chinese culture. And so that's a stark, that's a stark, stark statement. And so the question is, there are people today with no, you know, 
allegiance to the Catholic Church and to the, the dogmas, the moral dogmas of the Catholic faith, who are discovering on their own, or you know, coming to the conclusion more or less on their own, that in fact, th- things about marriage and the, the way that it can be much more permanent than culture at large tends to think that it is. Uh-huh. That, that, that there's a, there are great uh, opportunities there that aren't. And, and, to, and to then unpack those specific details. Uh-huh. Um, people, you know, like John Gottman, mm-hmm. semi-secular Jew, uh-huh. um, has done a lot of research on, among other things, marriage. And has himself come to the conclusion that almost any marriage can be saved. You know, again, from this perspective where his religion, his religious background allow, you know, has no problem with the concept of divorce. Right. That in itself, you know, he sees from talking to people, from taking them to his marriage lab in Seattle, I believe, interviewing hundreds and I assume at least a few thousand people at this point, and, you know, seeing the conversation, seeing where people break down, that, you know, these, these particular issues, you know, knowing each other, fighting the temptation to, you know, have contempt for each other and not communicate your desires to each other. Yeah. The uh, and, and you know the whole host all of all of his seven principles huh. and to look at for example the canon law surrounding marriage and see how see how well if at all and how the what correspondences we can draw between the different articles about the validity of marriage and and compare those to what we're discovering in psychology whether we were on the right track or not right hmm. but there are but there are pieces of revelation all over the place. In, in, of course, our tradition, the Catholic tradition. And so the, the idea of, of that arc would be to compare them on the, especially on the moral plane with what we're discovering in psychology. Uh huh. Knowing that we're not going to get a direct, there's, there is no guarantee that what's immoral is therefore measurably bad for us in a psychological sense. You can't make that, uh, claim. But, it's funny how often it may turn out that it actually is bad for us, even in that measurable psychological sense. <sighs> so those are those are an example of the the topics that we'd like to cover as we uh, progress through this podcast. Very good. Well, I think you've perfectly described the the prospects that we see in the podcast. Uh, the prop the prospects for um, learning more about the uh, the cutting edge of different fields, but even more excitingly, the prospects for uh, using those insights into um, uh, bringing more uh, people uh, together for these discussions, bringing ideas together that can actually solve problems, and uh, mapping a direction for faith and reason in the third millennium. Because we don't want to be saying all the time, oh, that's so second millennium. And so this, I will gladly... Look forward to our next episode with uh, this kind of preface, and I thank you very much for your conversation today. We'll be back for our listeners at the next episode. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Bill.